Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, President of the ACOI, and it's a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Digitalization of financial services has been happening at pace. We have seen automation in fraud detection, we've seen chatbots, we've seen documentation scanning and so on. Technology can also transform the way financial services as a highly regulated sector complies with its regulatory requirements and makes certain processes more effective and efficient. Listeners will know that the technology used for compliance is called regulatory technology or regtech. Some will already be using regtech, but many more will not be using it or just thinking about using it. Post-pandemic, budgets will be squeezed, but because of the many benefits of regtech, the market size of regtech is estimated to grow from 9.06 billion in 2019 to approximately 44.46 billion by 2027. So RegTech will be a feature of the financial services firms of the future. I'm delighted to welcome today as my guests, Rob Leslie, Ben Cronin, and Rachel Woolley. Rob is a serial entrepreneur, his latest venture being Sidici, founded in 2013. Sidici is creating the world's first distributed public identity utility to facilitate the verification of identity data without sharing the underlying data, thereby protecting the privacy of the person. Prior to 2003, he lived in Japan for nearly 20 years and held a number of senior management and director level positions, including with Datacraft Japan, PTS Limited, eSafe Japan and Dell Japan. Rob mentors with Enterprise Ireland, providing advice to its high potential startup companies, and he is an active investor in various startup companies in the technology and biotech spaces. Ben is a founder of UBO Services to provide verified beneficial owner declarations from legally reliable sources to ensure the data and declarations are made in real time meeting AML requirements. Rachel probably needs no introduction for a lot of our listeners, but for for those perhaps who haven't heard from her before, Rachel is Global Director of Financial Crime for Fenergo, a reg tech provider of client lifecycle management software solutions for financial institutions. Rob, Ben and Rachel are here to discuss with me today the benefits and challenges in deploying a RegTech solution. They will give some insights as to how to avoid or deal with these challenges and to look at the regulator view on RegTech. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast today, Rob, Ben and Rachel, and thanks for talking to us. Okay, so we'll start with, with the benefits. So what are the benefits of a good, reliable, well-designed RegTech solution to firms, customers, and financial services professionals? Great to be here. Uh, thank you for that glowing introduction, by the way. Um, I've never realized I did so much. The benefits of a good RegTech solution, well, as a provider of the service, it's always hard to... I suppose, imagine everything that an organization would need. But at the top level, there's probably three or four things that I would point to. Automation, where you can automate a large number of tasks that are very manual, time-consuming, would be something that I I would be looking for. So that you get 
consistency and repeatability uh, across the board so that you're doing you know a large number of things very quickly very efficiently and getting consistent answers and results uh, across the board so that regardless of who in your organization or where in your organization is being done you have achieved a consistent standard across all of those different things within you know all of these things obviously making sure that you've got a you know a policy that you're complying with is is critically important so making sure that the solution complies with your policy I think is 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 critically important and has the flexibility to be adaptable uh, as time goes by so automation consistency speed reliability and you know complying with policy generally would be the things that I would be saying to people I'd add to that as well Cathy Ben Cronin here a good reg, reg tech solution for firms, sometimes it depends on the firms. In my, my last project, I was involved with Kicker. Kicker sold APIs into a lot of the big FIs, financial institutions who needed data or a service on a different scale. What, what we've tried to do with UBOS services, we have focused on creating a solution that suits the small to mediums in particular, uh, with a portal service that can be accessed easily. And our, our, our approach is to say that a lot of the smaller obliged entities out there, solicitors, law firms, uh, council firms, want a solution that is easy to, to access. It has got value, but it, most of most important, it keeps them compliant. So we've a, there's a portal that we've designed for that particular purpose, but we've also, everything we do is built API. So when we, if we have partners or, or, or aggregators or the bigger uh, institutions that want to consume, they can consume through our API. So we're, we're trying to, target the big guys, but our, our focus uh, now, right now is really uh, getting the smaller obliged uh, entities onto our port. Thanks, Rob and Ben. And look, I think there's some really good criteria there for our listeners to look out for whenever they're they're looking at, at solutions. So really good automation, repeatability, consistency, and ability to implement your compliance policy will be dear to many of our listeners' hearts and easy to access, especially from a skills perspective, if, if in small firms there aren't the skills to deploy. And Rob and Ben, how robust should the current state of a firm's IT infrastructure be of considering deploying a regtech solution? I think Ben kind of hit the nail on the head there in that, you know, for a large or small organization, it has to be easy. And, you know, from an infrastructure point of view, most of the providers uh, that we come across are designing SaaS-based solutions, which are all sort of cloud-based. So all you really need is a connection to the internet, uh, you know, and, and a device that has sufficient space on your screen so that you can see the screen. And if you've got that, pretty much you, you're up and running. You can you can do what you need to do. So very little is the answer to your question. You know, as long as you've got connectivity and, and a device that's capable of, of displaying a screen that you can read, you're good to go. We have solution that's API as well as, uh, as the portal uh, and customers can access the portal on their phones. You know, it's, that's the way it is built. There are no obliged entities in the country, I would suspect, that don't have access to, to broadband and to connectivity. That's what RegTech is really pushing to, to be a solution that can be accessed from anywhere. I think there's some really good points there that Rob and Ben have made, and, and, and maybe part of this is demystifying what RegTech is and what it should be and the, the, the purpose of it. So I suppose back to the benefits and, and ultimately a well-designed 
series of solutions, if you like, or an overall solution, the end users shouldn't actually know that there's perhaps multiple vendors involved, there's multiple technologies being used, there's multiple APIs being used. It should still be a seamless experience for the end users. So, you know, depending on the type of activities they're doing. And then, you know, not getting too caught up in all of the various technical pieces and and, uh, everyone on this episode will know that I'm not technically minded myself, but we've been using some form of of regulatory technologies for quite some time. So screening and so on. It's just that now it's an awful lot better. We're able to integrate it more seamlessly with existing operations and so on. So it's, I suppose, not being afraid of it and looking at the best way to enhance your operational environments with the support of these uh, these emerging solutions that are are designed to to help and and push us forward from a management perspective, and and I think to to follow on what Rachel is saying, and obviously with with Crown Ergo, it's a, you know they're doing stuff at a at a completely different scale in terms of what's underneath the hood. It's important for the reg tech to offer the service, but there's a lot going on underneath the hood. There's a lot of APIs connected underneath, and that's whatever should be surfaced to make it as easy as possible for the service to be consumed and be it, you know, if you're doing a high risk customer or a low risk customer or whatever you, body of work you're doing, but there's a lot of moving parts in all our technologies. You know, it varies from company to company, but it's about not scaring, I suppose, the customers with the technology. How do you make it easy? How important is a reg tech strategy and, you know, what should it cover? I think it's really important. Without a strategy, you don't really know where you're going. You should have a strategy. And I think uh, ultimately it, it will have clear objectives, it will have clear timeframes, it will have clear accountability in terms of who owns it, you know, who's responsible for implementing it, who's responsible for executing on it. And within that, you know, all of the, the piece parts that you need in order to implement that strategy should fall out of it. What technology do you need? How much human resource do you need? Because technology is not going to solve everything. I would nearly suggest that to think that it is going to solve any, everything might be a mistake, simply because... We're dealing with areas that are are very complicated sometimes, that have complex moving parts that require humans to actually get involved and look at the overall landscape and make a decision based on the information that is presented. You know, machines can only do so much and they're very good at certain things, but complex analytical assessments is not one of the things that are generally in in their sort of sphere of of expertise or excellence. So I, I would be thinking in terms of, you know, get the machines to do what they're really good at, the mass processing of things and have humans do what they're really good at, which is the highly complex analytical stuff that, you know, we we are better suited to doing. So your overall strategy and your your posture and your stance, I think, is 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 really important and making sure that it's clear at the beginning is uh, is setting yourself up to succeed. Um, Not having it is is going the other direction. I think that's a really good point, actually, about the the human intervention piece. And I suppose, you know, I'll be in trouble for saying this, but just because you can automate something doesn't mean that you should. And and maybe, I suppose, a a less financial institution related example would be having a smart vacuum makes absolute sense because I don't have to clean my own floors. But having a smart washing machine doesn't because I still need to go and actually do something with it, like putting my my washing in. So when you're looking at the, the financial institution perspective, there's, there's so much, as Rob mentioned, the, the data, and you, you can absolutely automate the collection of data. You can present it in such a way that it's more meaningful, I suppose. But a colleague or a counterpart, I guess, in, in the US has described this as, you know, the, the, the technology cannot replace empathy, intuition and judgment, which is precisely what we need human experts to be able to, to do. But if we're able to present the data to them in, in, in a, a more efficient way, then they can do their jobs more effectively. And I think that's how we should be looking at the, the 
use of technology rather than a, I suppose, a silver bullet, if you like, to, to solve all of the problems. And just very quickly, I think in terms of the strategy piece, understanding the objective, you know, what is it that you're actually trying to achieve with this strategy? We've seen, you know, so many financial institutions over the last 18 months or so had their operations turned upside down. So, it, it you know, it shouldn't be, I suppose, something reactive. We should be looking now at how do we make this better, not only to, you know, ensure continuity in financial services, but ultimately to better manage risk, to better manage our, our uh, compliance objectives and so on. But really understanding that that objective is, is key to delivering on that strategy. Thanks, Rachel and Rob. And can you talk us through the stages of deploying a RegTech solution? Our approach is to make it as simple as possible. And our solution is quite is, is a slimmer proposition. So we, we effectively can sign up a customer and get them going in five minutes. So it, it is a service that can, can be accessed that easily. And we have you know various pricing models that include pay-as-you-go. So a customer essentially can set up an account with us and get going on our portal in, in, in a matter of minutes. Our API conversation is a very different conversation where we're talking to intermediaries or, or, or FIs, and that's, that, that's a much more long-winded, I suppose, conversation. But our, our, our focus right now is just to get the small to mediums going and to get them going on a portal that, that, that allows somebody to, to just onboard, do a case, and pay for that one case or do multiple cases and pay for those multiple cases. So from my perspective, Kathy, again, it all starts with your policy, I think. And, you know, policy will help drive your 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 strategy, what it is you're trying to do, how you're trying to do it. And, and you know, within the organization, as Rachel said, you know, your, your approach to risk and all of those different things. The one area that we spend a lot of time with clients at the very beginning of, of any engagement is trying to understand their requirements. But what are they asking us to do? And making sure that we actually deliver not what they think they want, but what they actually need. And usually at the start of that process and at the end of it, we've actually ended up with slightly different things. And it's a case of you know, sitting down with them and really talking through what is it you're trying to do so that we're able to capture exactly what it is they need, not necessarily what they think they want, because needing and wanting are, are maybe slightly different things so that we deliver something that is going to be functional and useful to them rather than, uh, you know, something that looks wonderful will work, but doesn't necessarily fit the business process that the organization may have in place for, for whatever it is. Ultimately, this is about business processes. It's not technology for the sake of technology. It's, it's technology to assist in the delivery of a business process that achieves some, some kind of an outcome. So building into you know, the requirement gathering process for us, you know, sufficient questioning to be able to extract that information out of the, the customer to explain to us what is your business process, where do you want to automate, what do you want to automate and to what degree helps us get to the point where we're, we're able to make a recommendation in terms of all of those different things. And, you know, Rachel made a really good point earlier on, which is, you know, a really good solution will actually combine lots of different things potentially into one very seamless tool that will do a lot of things for you, but you don't see where all of the different components fit together. So, you know, my screening might appear in one place. You might have, you know, ID verification, uh, OCR in, in another natural language processing might exist in some other places. And how all these pieces fit together, you know, is, is really important in the overall delivery of, of that solution. So again, I, I would think it's a, it's a step-by-step -step process. 
smaller organizations probably uh, would be less defined at the beginning than, than big organizations who have more complex structures and, and understand their processes maybe a little bit better. You know, Rachel with, with, with Fenergo are probably dealing with some of the you know, multinationals that have a lot of complexity in their processes and a lot of different legal requirements, for example, that would exist in different jurisdictions that would pre present different complexities because you're allowed to do some things in some places and not in others. Whereas dealing with an SME in one jurisdiction is a lot simpler. So overall, I think, you know, it's, it's policy drives requirements, drives what you want to put into that process and ultimately drives the deployment and making sure at the end of the day that, you know, you've got ownership and accountability and, and all of the necessary things to make the thing a success are, are critical. Just want to pick up on on a couple of points that Rob made, and and hopefully Rob and Ben will agree with this. That I suppose one of the most important things is partnering with the right technology vendors. So Rob mentioned about you know understanding the the requirements of the the customer, or the 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 end users is really critical because what you don't want to do is end up with multiple iterations of your product. You know from a commercial perspective because it's not maintainable and and so on. But also you want to make sure, you know, certainly in the area that we're talking about in, in the world of compliance and, you know, managing risk and so on, you don't want all of your customers doing different things when the reality is they should all be doing, by and large, the same thing, not necessarily the exact same way, but certainly with the same end goal, uh, which is, you know, in, in my case, um, preventing money laundering and so on. So you almost have, I suppose, an advisory role, not a, a formal advisory role, but you definitely have, uh, you know, as a vendor, a very unique position that you can engage with multiple stakeholders across the industry, understand where the, the industry challenges are, and then work as part of that, I suppose, community. And, and that's a, a core ethos of Fenerga, but uh, work as part of a community to, to address those challenges in a you know, a sort of a uniform way. So I think, you know, having that level of, of trust and was a, approaching it as though it is a partnership is really important if, if you're looking at deploying a solution that, that you, you identify the vendors that have that, I suppose, industry expertise that can support that journey. You really need to trust your vendor. And Rachel, you mentioned industry expertise there. Is there anything else that a firm should look for when they're sourcing a provider and is there anything they should avoid? I guess, you know, kind of to, to Rob's point there, you don't necessarily want to trust the vendor that says, yes, we can do absolutely anything you want exactly as you tell us to do it because that's not really a product. It's, it's not really a vendor. That's, you know, that's a consulting engagement where you define what you want and then the company goes and builds it for you. And and, and I suppose, as I said, it, it is a partnership. It, it has to be a good balance that you have the expertise and the, the innovative thinking, I guess, from the, the vendor, but that you're also bringing your experiences and expertise to the table to make sure that ultimately the solution and, and the deployment or the iteration of your version in, in your environment is exactly as you need it to be. So the technology comes from one end, but the operational challenges and I suppose the meaningful use of that technology is dependent on each of the, the customers and the end users. I'd echo what you're saying there, Rachel. I mean, what, what's clear to me is when I look at output from Fenergo and from Sidici is that both companies, and we, we try to create a voice out there that really kind of shows our bona fides that we know the space, that we have expertise. And that's through direct conversations with customers, but it's also through newsletters, through our marketing, through just a constant kind of feed of, I suppose, opinion um, and, and, a, and a voice that really comes from a place where we have authority because we're in, the, we're in this business for, for, for so many years. 
and I think that's important in terms of assessing a vendor, is when you're looking at a vendor, does it resonate with you as a customer? Does it resonate with your policy? Do you trust them? And that's a really important step to kind of establish who to go after, who do you, you think is providing a service that, that really kind of matches our policy? Thanks. And moving on to, to governance, how important is governance in the deployment of a reg tech solution? So, you know, making the right decisions, making sure there's the right oversight of those decisions, et cetera. And who needs to be involved? I think governance, Kathy, is critical. You know, anybody who is head of compliance or head of risk or financial crime, if, if your governance framework is not up to snuff, you know, there's a regulator going to come knocking on your door at some point and you know, you're going to feel their wrath if, if you haven't got the, the controls in place. You know, Rachel is probably the most qualified person on, on this call to, to talk to, you know, the, the need for governance. But it's one of those things that in every conversation, every customer conversation that we have, it almost always starts with governance. You know, what is your governance framework? What is your policy? Explain to us what your, your processes are and who's accountable, you know, at every step of the way, you know, for all of the different things that you do. So the quality with which you execute, you know, according to your, you know, your governance framework ultimately will determine, I think, how well, you know, your, your overall compliance positioning stacks up and stands up to scrutiny. So that if you're, if you're doing what you say you're doing and, you know, the, the policies are, are right, life gets easier. You know, there's an element of rinse and repeat. You just do the, the same thing over and over really, really well because you have the processes nailed down, the accountability in place, and that will deliver the results that you need. Obviously, with every governance framework, there are going to be exceptions. And how you handle those exceptions, you know, will be very, very important. You, and it's not a case of just ignoring them. You've, you've got to deal with them. And having clear, elucidated methods of doing that will be, I think, a difference overall in, in, in how you succeed. I think also it, it it brings us back again to the overall objective. So, I mean, if you look at any existing process or sorry, existing obligation, there's already a process in place. So if you're looking to, to RegTech, it's it's because you bet you want to better manage that process or you want to, I suppose, enhance your effectiveness in managing that process. And so if you're going to replace the existing manual process, then whatever you're replacing it with absolutely needs to, to do everything that that manual process does. And it needs to do it better. Otherwise, there's no point. So you really need to have the same controls, the same oversight of those controls and the ability, I suppose, to, to make changes as and when you need to in the exact same way that you would in a, in a manual context. And I suppose if you take a, a couple of examples, so certainly a, a quite a long time ago now, but manually screening or checking names against an OFAC list, for example. So that whole process has been improved. You can you can more effectively conduct your screening and so on, automate it through vendors and, and, and so on and so forth. And what we're seeing quite a lot of now is the, the manual element of having to assess the, the results, for example, and also close any false positives and, and, and things like that. But you still have to have the controls to make sure that there's either testing in, in place, that there is you know, senior management approval as and when necessary. And some of those tasks can be automated too, whereas previously there would have been written procedures that says if this then you know escalate to this person and so on so it's really looking at what is it that you're trying to replace what is the the overall objective what are the existing controls that are in place to make sure that risks are managed accordingly and can you replicate that or can you better that with the solution that you're you're deploying so in order to get to that point you absolutely need i suppose the the right voices in in the room to make sure that the the right decisions are being made and the right i suppose procedures are 
are being maintained. And ultimately, you know, without even, I suppose, really saying the word governance, you in effect have ensured that there's a, a mindset of governance as you're approaching these activities. And, and there is a personal liability context as well here that's, you know, stronger than ever. And that's when you're going to get, you know, more onerous. What is the role of the internal compliance function in each of the phases of deployment? So I guess, again, looking at that partnership model, so, and, and, and it also brings it back to what we spoke about with regards to, to trust and also selecting vendors that have that industry expertise, and I suppose the, the ability to speak the same language as a compliance officer, and I know that sounds a little, probably a little strange, and, and certainly there will be people listening to this wondering what I'm talking about, but we spend a lot of time talking about the, the technology side and, you know, the, the various buzzwords like transformation and et cetera, et cetera, but it, it really does come back to how do we make this better? How do we improve our effectiveness, improve efficiencies? And I'm probably using my own buzzwords now as well, but the compliance officer ultimately needs to be comfortable that what is being replaced, so the, the manual processes or the existing solution that is, is, in, is in place is essentially going to be bettered. So you, you have to have really strong advocacy, I guess, from the compliance function that they're supportive of what's being deployed. Now, it really depends, I suppose, on, on the size and scale of the operations of, of the customer or the entity that you're dealing with. Some compliance officers will be quite hands-on. Some want to be a little bit more abstract and, and maintain that, I suppose, oversight role. But ultimately, compliance need to be comfortable. So whether that's through direct engagement or, you know, more abstract, I suppose, information that they that they receive about decisions and, and solutions that are being deployed and so on. But absolutely, compliance needs to have buy-in and, and they are very much a, a strong advocate in some of the decision making um, and certainly should be. So, so getting compliance on site is really critical. Moving on to some of the pitfalls and if you could share a war story or two on, on where you've seen deployments go wrong and share with us how any challenges were overcome, if they were overcome. All our customers are perfect, Cathy. That's never happened ever. So generally, um, what, what I'd say is trying to get the customer in, into, the, into the posture, into the position where they understand what they're trying to do and don't try to do too much too fast. You know, sometimes you're imposing change on your organization and it can be painful, you know, for, for people to have to adapt to, to new working practices sometimes using new technology. It, it takes time sometimes for, for all of this to be sort of embedded and for people to adapt. The, the greatest risk, you know, to some of these things is that people say, no, I don't like it. I'm, and you know, give up before they've really even started and start to think about workarounds. Previously in my career, I did a lot of cybersecurity stuff, and typically the the security officer in you know an organization would say, you know, you you can't access external files, you know, from whomever or wherever. So what do people do? They they just don't access it through the the normal channel and say, well, send it to me on WhatsApp, uh, you know, and I get the file on WhatsApp, copy it across, and lo and behold, the file is now in my network. You know, so you've got to avoid those kind of situations where you know. People just don't want to, to comply, essentially. So I, I would generally say, you know, don't bite off too much at the beginning. Be clear in what it is you're trying to do. Do it in a reasonable time frame. Allow people the opportunity to learn and have feedback. Engage them in the process so that they feel that they're part of it rather than foisting something on them and sort of saying, you will do this because I'm telling you to do it. You know, the first reaction to that always is, 
no, I won't, you know, even though they may not say that, but it, it, you want them to work with you rather than against you. And generally, you know, to be fair to most organizations, they, they're very mature in, in how they approach these things. And there is good engagement generally. When, when you can explain the rationale for it, people will buy in and will make an effort, is, is what I would say. I'd also comment on something Rachel said earlier in, in terms of pitfalls. Rachel mentioned that if you're looking at vendors, if the vendors says they can do everything and if it's yes to everything, then that is an issue. And my background is in data and I see in the context of what some vendors can offer in terms of data, I think there's a real issue actually here whereby vendors can sell or, or, or use data that has a, a lineage that might not be as good as you would think, uh, that might not be adequate, accurate, or current. And this is a massive issue where a lot, of, a lot of big vendors are selling data. There's a lack of clarity as to the lineage of that data, how old it is, where it came from, is it mixed up with other data? This is a really critical problem because, uh, as Rachel also said earlier, that there's a lot of data out there. And you know, if you try to automate or extract from that data, that's, there are fantastic tools that are available to do that. But if the data, if some of the core data that has gone in there to begin with is, is, uh, is suspect, um, um, in particular, if it's out of date or if it's, if it's got no data on it, that can cause a massive problem downstream. No matter how good your AI is, no matter how good your analysis of the data is, your data mining, the, there are real issues in data vendors saying that, yes, this data is the best, uh, this data is up to date, this data is appropriate and adequate when in a lot of cases, it's not. I think probably uh, adding to, to both comments, so readiness is is a key concept, I guess, that, that we focus on. So in other words, project or client readiness to actually embark on the project. And, and as Ben said, you know, having the right and up-to-date, accurate data, et cetera, from your existing systems and, and uh, wherever else you, your whole data or your, your ingesting data from is really critical. And actually at a more simple level, do you have the right team in place and have they got the necessary time to devote to the project? And then I think something that Rob picked up on earlier is everybody on the same page on what's actually being delivered. So again, to, to Ben's point about not doing everything and not trying to do everything all at once. So is everybody understanding of what it is that we're going to achieve in what time frame and has everybody got the necessary time to commit to actually achieving that because if you're starting off on day one on a project with people not agreeing people not even in the room that need to be you're you're kind of doomed for failure once a solution has been implemented in a firm and it's it's operating it's up and running and operating what does the ongoing maintenance this is a how long is a piece of string question a little bit, Kathy, in, in the sense that it can be as little as you want it to be or as, or as much as it has to be because of, you know, maybe things you forgot or, or changes that you have to make along the way because of, of additions or, or amendments that you have to make to your processes. Technically, if it was designed right, there should be very little change in terms of what you need to do, you know, once it's been implemented. You know, you should be able to deploy it and run it and not have to make a lot of changes if it has been designed and implemented correctly and effectively and is following the process and policy that you are, you know, trying to, to make sure that it, it is following. It shouldn't cost a fortune to maintain something. However, you know, as we all know, regulations change, risk changes within an organization regularly. You do need to have adaptability within whatever solution you, you have 
but that adaptability should be part of your process and shouldn't require you know a massive overhaul of a system you know because you sort of concreted yourself into a particular way of doing something it should allow for ongoing change as and when that change occurs either from a business perspective or a regulatory perspective so i i would think again that this is part of your requirements, requirements gathering at the start, understand how much change is likely to be embedded and design that into the process at the outset. And Rachel, have you anything to add on maintenance or, or, or monitoring of the effectiveness of a system? Yeah, so this, I guess, is a real key focus for a lot of regulators, particularly, I suppose, with the, the advancement of RegTech and, and, you know, as that industry becomes more mature. So does it, you know, to Rob's point, there's a few different contexts, I guess, that we should be thinking about. So, you know, at one end of the scale, your screening provider adding new designated individuals or entities to, to the list that they screen against, you probably don't need to have a phone call to find out who they are or, you know, what the changes mean. It'll just happen all automatically in, in your with your integration. But what is important is being able to test the results on a periodic basis. So one of my my past lives actually I worked in a compliance monitoring function and depending again on the context you're you're checking that the right decision has been made based on a screening result that's come back that the the right activities have been actioned based on the the policy and so on but also that there's consistency across whether it be multiple branches or multiple jurisdictions where the same policy particularly if it's a, a global policy for pep management shall we say and so making sure that you can stand over the decisions that have been made based on the results that have been generated or presented by the solutions. And that obviously gets more and more complex depending on the type of solution that you're talking about. But I'm, I'm certain everybody's familiar with, with screening providers and, and how, how they work. So it, it really does depend on what it is that the, the solution is doing and the level or the depth of testing that's required. But there's absolutely an expectation that not only that you understand how the system works and how it's maintained on an ongoing basis, but that you continue to make sure that it's it's doing the job that it needs to, that it, it continues to be effective at the job it's tasked with doing. Thanks, Rachel. And do you have an understanding of what the regulator response and, and view on the use of, of reg tech has been to date? Yeah, so as in particular in the EU, and, and I suppose everyone I'm sure is tired of hearing about the, the pandemic and how our lives have changed over the, the last 18 months, but it's the same, uh, the same goes for, for the regulatory authorities as well. So, you know, uh, certainly there's, there's folks who'll be listening to this who will remember the arguments from financial institutions that we can't work from home, it's too much of a risk, we can't access all the systems, et cetera, et cetera, and overnight, all of a sudden, everybody was able to, to work from home. And it's, you know, a huge testament to IT teams across the industry that managed to, to facilitate it. But there has been this massive shift because of that. We were on the way there already. So there, there absolutely was, you know, digital transformation has been a hot topic for quite some time. But all of a sudden now you've got pretty much every industry looking at how they can continue or sustain themselves in the event of, of I suppose, unexpected activity. So every, every BAU plan has been put to the test in the last two years, for sure. But from a regulator's perspective, so they've had to start conducting their uh, supervisory activities uh, remotely. Got the likes of the Financial Action Task Force that are doing their on-sites, and I'm using my, my air quotes, they're, they're conducting their on-sites, but remotely as well. So everyone has had to kind of change and adapt, which is really pushing the boundaries then of the reg tech solutions that exist and the ones that are emerging or, or the existing ones and, and how they evolve. The EU, so they've conducted a survey last year of, of reg tech vendors. There's also been a number of consultations, I guess, where there is a bit of a focus on the use of regulatory technology to, to better manage risk and so on. 
And then if you look at the, the EU legislative reform proposals for, for anti-money laundering that were published a couple of months ago, there's there's quite a lot of mention there on the use of technology and so on as well. So there definitely is this recognition that there's not only better ways to do the, do things, but also it, it, it ensures continuity in, in financial services and also ensures protection of, of the financial services industry. And one very last point on that, actually, the Financial Action Task Force has, has published a number of guidance documents in terms of the use of regulatory technology and also the benefits that, that they can bring, particularly, and, and of course I'm biased, but particularly with regards to prevention of money laundering and terrorism. Yeah, I'd just like to pick up on, on that last point that, that Rachel was making there in relation to you know the Financial Action Task Force and the regulators generally pushing pushing change. I, I think the, the pandemic has actually highlighted gaps in, in, in the system. The amount of public money that has been siphoned off by, you know, crooks and nefarious actors, you know, has been phenomenal. And, and I think when the dust settles, governments in particular are going to realize that much more control has got to be brought uh, into the system that delivers, you know, effective results much, much faster. I mean, when you think about the fact that we identify, you know, 1% of all laundered funds around the world, I mean, that's just ridiculous when you think about it, you know, the, and the amount of money that is invested in technology solutions. I mean, if you if you think about it, yeah, I'm spending billions of euros or dollars and I'm finding 1% of what I'm looking for. Well, I'm either looking in the wrong place or the thing is doing complete, something completely different to what I want it to do. So I think the, the policymakers in particular are waking up to the fact that they have got to get you know, the overall framework in, in a much more robust state where... Uh, it allows for cooperation. It allows for collaboration. There is consistency in the legal frameworks across all the different jurisdictions. And one of the things that I think is going to be uh, a major change uh, pretty soon is that collaboration between countries and the enablement of collaboration between organizations is also come to the fore. Um, you know, some of the new technologies that are out there, privacy enhancing technologies that allow organizations to work on each other's data in a manner where they don't have to actually share it, I think is one of those things that potentially is going to, you know, open up a, a whole new area of uh, activity. And both, both, you know, identifying criminal activity, but also positively as well, in that you'll be able to extract positive value out of data that previously you wouldn't have been able to um, to use. So I, I definitely think and agree with Rachel, I think we're, we're going to see a lot of change happening in the, in the uh, very near future. <laughs> And, and the latest wake-up call is, of course, Pandora Papers released, you know, over the last week or so. What's interesting about that is politically, it's, it, you know, it's, it's dynamite, but a lot of the commentary is around, around facilitators, particularly in the West, where there are many controls in place, but facilitators across legal, across estate agents, accountants, the whole gambit of facilitators that allow laundering and buying of assets across the globe uh, you know on a massive scale everybody's at it it seems uh, if you're super rich or if you're politically connected and i think politically this the it, you know things things are kind of coalescing and moving in in the right direction for sure and regulators in particular are looking at uh, the, the response to the latest only the latest release of uh, of uh, of dodgy papers, it, it, there's definitely a tailwind from a regulatory point of view, and there's definitely pressure on them to kind of really, really look at the facilitators across across the globe. And what are the developments in supervisory technology or SIPTEC, I think it's it's called, and can RegTech providers respond to this to help firms cope with regulators moving to supervisory technologies? 
one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in, and, and it kind of speaks to some of the, the topics that we've covered so far. So I guess the, the processes for, and again, my, my bias will kick in here with anti-money laundering. So a lot of it is reactive. We wait for things to happen and then we report our suspicions to the authorities. And then, you know, obviously there's a, a, a backlog at the, the supervisory level where they need, then need to go and prioritize the reports that come in. And all the while the money's gone. It, it's moved or, you know, someone has made benefit of the, the the transfer and so on. Everything is too late. It's too reactive. So there is an initiative in the Netherlands whereby they have almost like a, a utility for transaction monitoring and essentially sharing information amongst a number of financial institutions so that it is more real time. And anyone who works in, in the area of anti-money laundering will know that no criminal will use one financial institution to launder all their proceeds. They're going to to have, you know, a number of different paths and avenues, which is precisely what we need to counter, if you like. Bringing that a step further, should the regulators have that direct access to those live transaction monitoring feeds, it means that we've got a better chance of actually detecting illicit activity and actually preventing it live, if that makes sense, rather than waiting for a, quite frankly, stale report to be submitted to say this is what's happened and we think it, it was suspicious. We're, we're missing the boat. We're, we're entirely missing the trick. So it's getting to a point where everyone is able to work together in real time and actually start to, to prevent rather than just report. I'll, I'll follow on from that. The, the, the project that Rachel's talking about is, is, is called TMNL. We're actually involved in a very similar project in Switzerland, being led by one, one of the large consulting firms under the auspices of the, the Swiss financial regulator, FINMA. And essentially what it does is a graduated approach to the qualification of a suspicion. So you, you have four large Swiss banks who want to work together in a collaboration. A transaction happens where payment, for example, is sent from bank A to bank B. Bank A raises an alert of some kind to say, we have a suspicion here that something not quite right. We don't have enough information on our own to qualify it. Can we run a collaboration with the, the counterparty bank to see, can we either increase the suspicion or qualify it out and basically say it's it's not of not of concern you can run a computation that will allow you to qualify that in qualify it out and if you still can't qualify to the point where you you either eliminated or established that you need to file a suspicious activity report you can go out again to the wider network and see has anybody else triggered an alert on on this account or this individual relating to you know, something that might be in the same area all without anybody sharing any data so this is the key thing in Switzerland. They're very sensitive about clients and the confidentiality of the data, but you're still able to extract the insight that you need in order to qualify your suspicion. Now, the regulator is okay with this. That The regulator is fully behind it to the point where they're going to create a project ultimately that will allow a general database to be created of suspicious activity reports, for want of a better word, where it is almost provable, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody was involved in some kind of illicit activity. And the regulator has complete visibility over this. So it's trying to get regulators and the institutions working much closer together to qualify in or qualify out suspicious activity at the point it happens, not weeks, months after the fact, when the money is gone and the crook is gone and you're never going to see the funds again. It's becoming much more proactive rather than reactive. And this new class of privacy announcing technologies that you know we and others are bringing to the market 
will enable. And, you know, I, I've, I've you know, many of the people on, on this podcast will, will be involved in Irish financial institutions. We've been talking to BPFI and some of the other institutions here. So if, if there are organizations out there, you know, a blatant plug on my own uh, behalf here, who would be interested in learning more about this, I'd be very interested in talking to them because it's about the creation of collaboration. How do you build networks of organizations who want to work together in order to try and mitigate and counteract some of the, the negative and illicit activity that's going on out there. Uh, I'd, I'd love to have those conversations if there are organizations and people listening to this. Oh, I, I'll allow you that shameless plug, Rob, because that is, you know, a fascinating look into the future, actually. That would be really powerful if we could stop, grasp that money in, in real time and really genuinely make sure that the, the, the crook doesn't enjoy the benefits of their, of their illicit activity. Okay, well, look, we've, we've come to the end of, of the podcast. Any final messages or key messages from this? For me, collaboration is coming. It's not going to be about a single organization's posture. It's going to be about a community's posture. So we are working right now with, with FATF, with some of the, the uh, regulatory authorities, with the policymakers, ultimately about trying to make sure that we develop technologies that allow compliance with you know, the Criminal Justice Act, the Money Laundering Act um, around the world, but also don't contravene privacy legislation. So, you know, the, the GDPR, for example, many people sort of see GDPR as a massive barrier to being able to share information, um, you know, relating to money laundering. I, I think the policymakers are going to be much clearer in terms of where the green zone is between, you know, money laundering on one end of that spectrum and GDPR and privacy rights on the other end of the spectrum. So that it's not a case of you can't do one or the other. There will be a clear zone in the middle where as long as you follow a policy and a very clearly defined approach, it will be allowed and you will not be breaching, you know, your customer's rights along the way. So collaboration is coming is the message that I would like to leave with everybody. Ben, any final thoughts? It was touched on earlier. I think all organizations, all obliged entities, big and small, need to understand that, that there is no silver bullet in your onboarding or your AML obligations, that it does require human intervention. You know, there are always exceptions that require human touch. And there's, you know, over the last number of years, there's obviously been a rush to, to automation, to tick the box in a regulatory sense. And sometimes that approach is fraught because if you automate everything, then you know, people work out how to get through that. So I, I would say you can you can streamline a lot of the process. The heavy heavy lifting can be done, but there's all, nearly always, particularly for the edge cases, a human intervention requirement. And let's not lose sight of that. And the final comments go to, to you, Rachel. So I, I would agree entirely with Rob and Ben, but for the purposes of adding a third point, I think a combination of both. So for, for compliance officers that are a little bit or, you know, folks who work in, in the compliance function, don't be afraid of it. it you know, the, the, the technology isn't here to, to replace the human experts. It's here to help them. So, you know, lend the voice of expertise to the projects that are happening, whether they be digital transformation or regulatory deployment projects and so on. And to, to Rob's point, be part of that community in that conversation so that we can actually push the boundaries and, and really start to target the areas that, that, that need both technology and experts so that we can really make a difference. Well, thank you to Rob, Ben and Rachel for sharing your insights and expertise on this fascinating topic that's going to be more and more relevant to our, our listeners and members. And thanks to you for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the ACOI. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful, and we would be very grateful if you would review and or rate this podcast. Until the next episode, goodbye.
Compliance is core to the provision of regulated financial services and the risk management of those services. The evolution of technologically driven innovation in financial services presents new challenges for the contemporary compliance function. Fintech's focus on the application of innovative technology solutions and enhanced data analytics to deliver an optimal user experience needs to be balanced by appropriate governance, control and oversight. The ACOI and its education partner, Professional Accountancy Training, have collaborated to develop a contemporary practitioner-focused course that translates the traditional compliance function in the evolving fintech environment. This course has been designed to address industry-wide challenges by providing the professional training in fintech risk and compliance. The program provides participants with the knowledge and skills required to conduct and manage evolving compliance functions within the financial services industry. Whatever your career stage, experience or ambition, the ACY is here to support you. To find out more on our educational offerings and how you can register, please visit acoi.ie. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.